All right, KISS Army, welcome to the KISS FAQ podcast. Thank you for letting us into your head. I hope we don't do any damage. This is a KISS-related podcast by the board for the board. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to episode 42 of the KISS FAQ podcast. I'm going solo today. Um, everyone else has been fired or quit, uh, but I am joined by a special guest, and it is um, James Campion, author of the new KISS book, Shouted Out Loud, the story of KISS's Destroyer and the Making of an American Icon, which is published now, I believe. Is that correct, James? It is. It's out right now. Uh, it came out um, last week, in fact, uh, October, I want to say, 13th. So copies are out there shipping. I've just received mine. And you know what? I could not put the book down once I picked it up. But before we talk about the book, let's talk a bit about you. Um, You're not a new author. You've got plenty of writings out there. I've actually got a link to uh, a 2006 Aquarian interview with Paul Stanley, which back then was one I really enjoyed. But tell everyone out there who's uh, thinking about picking up this book a little bit about yourself as a writer. Sure. Um, my first published book was in 1996. It's called Deep Tank Jersey, and it's about the New Jersey club scene. I always thought it would be great to write a book about uh, musicians that didn't make it big, that, that punch the clock like we all do instead mm-hmm. of 9 a.m. or something. They punch it at 10, 10 p.m. and uh, work all night. So I, I traveled with a band called Dog Voices for that book, uh, and uh, that was a lot of fun. That was my first book, and it got me a lot of writing. I was hired by the Aquarian Weekly, which is the longest-running independent weekly in the country uh, that deals with music and pop culture. And recently, in the last couple of years, it was uh, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame archives. So that was a great thrill to be in there with everybody else. And um, like I said, I, I've done a, a lot of cover material and uh, interviews and features on rock stars and uh, musicians, uh, people from the um, from all walks of pop culture, films and art. So it's been a lot of fun. And through my um, work, I eventually ended up in 2011 writing an article for the Huffington Post uh, called Why the Blank Isn't Kiss in the Rock and Roll of Fame. <laughs> I had no idea they weren't in the Rock and Roll of Fame. Uh, I didn't even know Alice Cooper wasn't in there either, which is a complete crime. Uh, at that's both of them. But uh, the key aspect of it is that um, I really wanted to make the point that I was shy. I didn't even know. And then I got such a flood of emails and calls and responses to it. I realized there was this huge outpouring of love and uh, respect and real admiration. The true kiss people came out. So I said, you know, this is an interesting subject. I'd like to write about it. And ever since I was a kid, Kiss Destroyer always stayed right here, you know, right in my head as one of the great underrated pieces of rock music. So I decided to, if I was going to write about Kiss, I'd want to write about that. So that was my journey. Yeah, and that's interesting that, you know, you mentioned for the Huffington Post, you know, Alice Cooper wasn't in the Hall of Fame. Kiss isn't yeah. in the Hall of Fame. You know, it's, it's almost crimes against humanity from a pop culture point of view for both one of those bands were doing in the early 70s alice first and then obviously kiss a little bit later um when did you decide that it was going to be destroyer i mean when did you set out um number one to say i want to write the the book on destroyer because this book is the book thanks i really appreciate that and coming from you and i want to say on the on the record we talked before we went on the air uh your work your human's herculean work that you've done 
compiling all this great minutiae in the Kiss pantheon, whether it's, you know, your album focuses or all the solo stuff. You got that new book out. Uh, it was really a great source of inspiration for me. Uh, but uh, so to hear that from you is a great. Well, thank, really thank, thank you. I appreciate that. No, I, I mean it. Uh, I decided to do Kiss Destroy. I don't know if you heard of the series by Continuum Publishing out in London called uh, 33 and a Third. Yes, I've seen a bunch of those books out. Yeah. Yeah, and I've read quite a few myself, and they're very well done. They're short, basically glorified essays. And the basic idea is to write about an album and why it's important. And some of them are the, the great ones, you know, Exile on Main Street, Sgt. Peppers, yep. the stuff you see all the time. And some of them are the lesser kinds. And I saw one on, on Hotter Than Hell, ACDC, a band that, by the way, opened up for Kiss and was in the Rock and Roll yep. Hall of Fame before them. But um, so I said I'd like to do one, so I pitched the Destroyer idea to them, and they loved it. But as I started to research it, as I started to talk to the people behind the scenes, I realized this is a bigger idea than just a glorified essay. And I started to pick up all these old magazines that I had read as a kid but I had lost and, and, and start doing the research and made some phone calls and got in touch with people who worked on the record. And it became a bigger project. So I was very lucky to find Backbeat Books, which is a subsidiary of Hal Leonard, one of the great biggest uh, music publishers in the world. And they really established – me to get this book done I, I, they came in towards the end but um destroyer was to answer your question destroyer was always there if i was going to write a bu book about kiss i was always intrigued by destroyer it really captured me when i first heard it at 13 years old uh, it, it's always been the book i bring up in arguments look what's great albums of the 70s you know fleetwood mac and eagles and i'm like, wait wait what about destroyer so i thought maybe if somebody could just finally write an intellectual treatise about one KISS record. Just concentrate that and talk about how important KISS was to so many of us and how undervalued they are among critics that I might have myself a story on my hands. And I really did. It was a lot of fun. Did you have any fears, really, of approaching Destroy? Because if you compare it with the albums that preceded it, that it's a paradigm shift for the band, that they're going from basically just recording rock and roll and trying to get it down on tape, and we hear the, euf the euphemism of we're just trying to capture our live sound on record unsuccessfully, into basically when we look at all the other successful bands throughout history, whether it's the Beatles and Sgt. Peppers, Beach Boys, Pet Sounds, Exile on Main Street for the Stones, and... Pink Floyd, I guess you could pick any one of a number of albums being their seminal or their defining album. Did you did you worry that approaching this album kind of takes away from where the band starts out? And it's a clean slate for them in 1976 because it's such a, a step up, for, uh, up from where they were kind of uh, working from musically and creatively. Uh, yes, I was worried, and I'll tell you why, um, which is I'm going to say again. Getting your approbation, having you read the book completely unsolicited. I know we sent you a copy, but uh, and I, I told them, you know, Julian needs to get a copy of this. Uh, I cross my fingers because I know that there's Kiss fans are very protective and they're extremely uh, very keyed in on certain aspects and certain periods of the band. And I know one thing for sure. Destroyer is one of the most controversial. You look at all these other bands that put records out. Some of them are controversial. Some people feel like maybe the band shouldn't have gone in that direction or that was their experimental period. But this album, from, this, from the time it even came out, was such filled with such controversy and such back... People love it or they hated it or they argued about it. So that was part of the impetus for me writing it. 
but it was also the worry, as you mentioned, that I had because um, I want KISS fans to enjoy it. I want them to see my points in it uh, about how important that record was. But I also didn't want them to think that I'm ignoring the other parts of the canon. I just feel that, and one of the themes of my book is that it wasn't until Destroyer that they really became, and that's why I put it in the subtitle, an icon where you could actually connect all those things they are now. If you think about what KISS is now, if you stop a 21-year-old kid on the street, or my dad, who doesn't care about KISS at all, and ask him about KISS, they think of KISS. And I think this was the very, very beginning of kind of branding them as icons so it was really nerve-wracking because i know how controversial it is but i also know that the people who worked on it really felt strongly about it as well and it kind of fed my feeling of i think i've i've come across the right subject and i'm doing the right thing for it because all those people knew they were working on something that really would take this band that had just broken out with a live and was kind of a rock oddity and making it really an american icon so let's talk about some of those people that you interviewed for this book, because one of the one of the things I'm going to give you props for straight out is Jamesina. Those interview segments that uh, and quotes from him are absolutely fantastic. Not only do they dig into the technical side, which a lot of fans are going to love, some others, you know, not so much because obviously the technical side they're more interested in the end result than you know the process of cooking and the ingredients that go into it. But that was absolutely fantastic. Who was uh, kind of the first person you approached as an interview, and what was the? You must have had a list at the beginning of you know every everyone that you wanted to try and hit for this book um, to talk about their experience and their memories. Uh, what kind of order did you go in, and, and who was the first one? that you managed to you know talk with that's a great question uh, and it, if it wasn't for him i there were many points in this writing this book where i thought okay it's my waterloo now i either get through this thing or yeah. i'm gonna it's not gonna be a book the first person was corky um stasiak the assistant engineer robert corky stasiak who when i got to talk to him uh, i mean his career is amazing going all the way back to work oh with John totally, totally and, uh, insane it's crazy what these guys in the record plan. I do a whole chapter on the record plan, which, you know, is fascinating in itself. I met a lot of those guys and they all want me to write a book about the record. Plan. <laughs> but Corky lived, I had it, got found his number, strangely enough, in the, the yellow pages, old fashioned. And I called it. It was a 516 number. It's um, uh, in Long Island. He answered the phone, but he answered it in Puerto Rico. He has a place in Puerto Rico where he goes out and spends his, uh, his winters. And interestingly enough, he ended up using the money when he recorded John Lennon's uh, Walls and Bridges. He had the lyric sheets to a couple of the songs, and John uh, said, keep these, I'm not going to need them. Wow. Put them away in plastic and kept that money and actually bought a house in Puerto Rico on those, which is a fantastic story in itself. Um, so I, he answered the phone, and right away he started talking, Destroyer, oh, what a great, and he just went right into <laughs> yep. it. So I said, you got to let me get a tape recorder. We have to set up a time, and he said, fine. So once I got Corky's ear and we started doing these interviews, and he gave me so much time, uh, he introduced me to Jay Messina. And Jay was actually the first person I interviewed uh, proper because, like I said, Corky was giving me all this stuff, and I said, I need time to prepare an interview. Uh, so he gave me Jay's number. Jay called me right back. He lives in Manhattan, still works doing uh, engineer work and, and producing. And as you said, just so upfront, completely honest and excited about what they did. And I didn't want this book to be the making, as you said, the making of it. You know, watch it. Nobody wants to see them make the sausages, as they joke. But I did. When I started listening to these guys, I realized this is why the sonic imagery and the power and the lasting uh, oral 
feelings that you get from listening to Destroyer. It, it's not anachronistic. It doesn't stay in the 70s. It's classic 70s rock, no doubt about it. But it still holds up today, and a lot of those songs do. And I think a lot of it had to do with the guys who put it together. It was definitely Gene, Paul, uh, Peter, and Ace. I don't mean to minimize their uh, their contributions, obviously. But when I started re- you know, talking to people like Jay and Corky and eventually Bob, Ezrin, uh, I realized just the immense amount of work and ingenious quality that they put into Destroyer, which makes it, like you say, and I agree, the seminal kiss record. Now, talking to Corky, I've spoken with him, and I've got to say that he has a stream of consciousness when you talk to him, and and, and very detail-oriented. He remembers his passion talking about his work, and, you know, this is his life's work. And, you know, I'm glad that he's as proud as he as he is. He doesn't blow it out of proportion. He's straightforward in how he tells the story. Um, But number one is his diaries, you know, that he kept notes on what he was doing. And hallelujah um, that that he was doing that, because what I find interesting is when we talk to people like Corky's or the Jamesinas or the guys who are capturing the sound, that's the big difference between Gene and Paul, Ace and Peter. They're they're the performers. It's the guys who are actually capturing them. They're miking it. They're recording it. They're using their technical aplomb. Um, Bob Ezrin, of course, who we'll talk about. You know, it's, it's those guys who are so important for us to really get a picture of what's going on in the studio. That has nothing to do with the songs. That's all down to the creation of music. You know, we're on to step 30 of maybe of 100 talking to Corky and uh, and Jay. But but Corky, his his diaries must have been a godsend. Were you able to, you know, have him share those with you or did he uh, provide notes from them? He did, he did. I thought he'd have more in them because I had read about them on a couple of uh, Jeff Suzz who wrote uh, Kiss Alive Forever with uh, another gentleman, I believe, Kurt Gooch. Kurt Gooch. And he had written um, an article in Kiss Magazine in 2005 about the Destroyer Sessions, and he mentions in there the dates from Corky's journal. So, of course, I asked him about it, and Corky said, sure, and he did share them all with me, everything he had, including very exclusive pictures that I include some of them in the uh, – in the book and whatever I didn't, I'm trying to post on the Facebook page for the book. Right. But, um, he, unfortunately, here's a sad story. He did lose a lot of his journals, including the destroyer journals in Sandy. Uh, cause he's right out there in long Island and he was away, uh, when it hit. So, um, and if it wasn't for apparently Joan Jett, who's one of his, um, neighbors who has a kind of weird quasi connection to destroyer herself. Um, she went and saved a lot of his archive material down downstairs in his basement. Otherwise, he would have lost almost all of it. But I, I you know, just to jump in there, I wish she'd yeah, say, no. I wish she'd save the material I was interviewing Corky for. Yeah, <laughs> because I, when I spoke with Corky uh, for another project, which I can't talk about yet, um, sure. that stuff was gone, which uh, is a shame. So I'm certainly glad that we have the Destroyer stuff and the the other things that Kurt and Jeff have put out over the years. Real lifesaver, that stuff. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and, and like, you know, I'm sure, as you well know, Corky worked on Rock and Roll Over, Love Gun, uh, The Elder, uh, yep. Music from the Elder. So he worked on a lot of Kiss stuff, the, the Kiss Alive uh, stuff, specifically the fourth side, the non-live side. So um, Corky was, you know, he stayed around with the band. So he gave a good perspective on, on what Bob did, how Bob got the most out of them, how really experimental 
um, you know, without being pretentious, they really went for it with this record. And they put their hands in Bob, and Bob really pushed them, and so did the engineers. And everybody, like I said, knew they were doing something special. They didn't care. They threw ideas against the wall. They tried different soundscapes. They tried different bass. They, they, they tried echo chambers. They did everything. They put the drums in, a, in an elevator shaft, which is a true story. All that stuff really, really lends, I think, to the beauty and majesty of that record. So, uh, it, yes, to, to finish up, Corky did share a lot of that stuff with me, and he was very meticulous, again, about putting dates in there. Yeah. So there was that controversy, as you know, about when the record was recorded. You know, Some people assume it was recorded in August, September, and then it broke up with the, the lawsuits that happened, and then they went back. And I kind of pieced together, I think, the definitive story as much as we know because the record plant is gone now. Yep. And I called the record plant in L.A., and they have no records at all. And so was A&R Studios, which was, uh, as you know, Phil Ramone's place. that used to be Columbia Studios back in the 50s and 60s, and they recorded Beth and uh, the, the Beth and um, Great Expectations choir and orchestras there. Both those studios are gone now. And so it's hard to find out exactly when. So I tried to piece out the controversy of how this thing was done. But Corky at least lent me this idea that as far as he knows, NJ, they started this record on January 4th, 1976, and finished it in early February with mixing. So, yes, it was a godsend. It's lost to the ages now, but at least we got it in the book. So there's a challenge for anyone out there listening, because we know that KISS fans are hoarders, and that a lot of us end up with some very interesting documentation. If you have documentation from the record plant, bills, um, you know, anything from the Destroyer sessions, get them to James, you know, because if there's still any question about a mystery out there, um, I interviewed Neil Tiemann years ago, and that was uh, the drummer from one of Paul, St Paul Stanley's pre-KISS bands, who was actually working at Electric Lady while they were doing the cleanup work on Alive. And he was adamant at the time, but couldn't provide any particular detail that they were jumping between studios, working both on the new album and cleaning up the you know, the material for the Alive release. Now, what that suggests to me is more that they were working on demos, you know, themselves, because he doesn't right. he doesn't mention Ezrin at all at that time. So I, I think we've probably got one picture. And, and let's talk about the genesis of some of this material. August 75, we know they go into Magnographics, and they cut all those demos, and Gene probably had a bucket full of his own stuff from other sessions sure anyway, going back to probably January or earlier. Um, when I was listening to some of that stuff while reading the book, you listen to Detroit Rock City, completely different Paul's demo of that. And everyone's heard God of Thunder because it's on the Kiss box set. So two stunningly different things. How how do you think the album, would the album have actually even made it uh, without Bob Ezrin to take that material and to craft and hone it and refine it and sprinkle pixie juice all over it to make it to make it fantastic? Uh, big N-O. No, yeah. it would not have. Uh, listen to Just a Kill, listen to Hotter Than Hell, listen to Rock and Roll Over. Uh, these are completely different records. Now, they're not a completely different band. There are echoes, absolutely, of what Kiss is in Destroyer. Uh, but to his ultimate consternation, because he got hammered when that record came out, as he said, that one reviewer said they wanted to punch Bob in the face <laughs> on behalf of Kiss yeah. fans everywhere. Uh, Bob actually went into hiding that, you know, Bill O'Coin would, you know, had to send him this this, this long letter that he shared with me uh, about how we have to let you go because he was going to produce Kiss. He was going to be the producer the way he worked with Alice Cooper because the Alice Cooper band had splintered and he worked yeah. on um, Welcome to My Nightmare, which I cover in the book the year before, which gave him a lot of impetus, especially with 
uh, Only Women Bleed and to his work with Beth. But so Bob was ready to be the Kiss producer and Kiss handed themselves over body and soul to him. The boot camp, everything that goes along with it. A lot of that stuff is is has been out there in the ether, but I, I kind of compile it all into the book and get new information. But Bob was so cinematic. That, that word keeps coming back. Corky talks about it. Cor- that, that's a Corky word, cinematic. Cinematic. Uh, as Corky says, you know, there are certain guys that can make music smile. Or as um, the great George Martin who produced the Beatles, who, you know, uh, Alice Cooper says, you know, that's that's George Martin was, out, you know, uh, Bob was our George Martin. Uh, you, there's certain people who can make music wink. Yeah. And Bob had that. And when I was a kid, that's another reason that brought me to Destroyer, quite frankly. And I wanted to tell a good story about Bob because it's never been told. And I've been bugging him now for a year to write his <laughs> memoir. And people keep trying, but he keeps telling me, not now, not yet. I'm still living my life, which he is. He's still working to this day. But Bob, uh, his work with Lou Reed in Berlin, later with The Wall, uh, obviously all the great Alice Cooper stuff in this record, I was always amazed and intrigued by his work. So he did take songs that were really great like detroit rock city there is a germ of a really great rock and roll song there but he gave it a pathos he gave it sort of an aria feel that whole middle section uh, that he hummed to the band to get them to play it and um all the taking god of thunder which is really just a quick fast song that that um paul did based on bob's suggestions give me a theme song so he figured i'm the god of thunder the god of love Mm -hmm. the god of sex you know and he's and then bob for some reason Heard something in there. Maybe I'll love make we'll make love till we bleed. You know that's a line in there that's yeah. kind of strange. But um, that he started seeing darker themes in there. Slowed it down, which Paul mentions in the book. I, I this is great. He's slowing it down, and then he gave it to Gene, which shocked Paul and, and upset him at first. But to Paul's credit, and everybody in the band again, all for one, one for all. Bob said, "Listen, this is the way we're going to do it. Believe me." Believe me, this is the right thing. And of course, God of Thunder is arguably Gene's signature song, and the, one of the first times, if not the first time, that he used that growl that he ended up using later yeah, in the, absolutely. his career. So, so, I mean, he wasn't afraid to do anything with the band, but what I think is most striking is the band's willingness to just hand themselves over and say, we put ourselves in your hands, put us through this boot camp. And I, I think of Peter Chris primarily, that that cannot have been much fun to an untrained uh, musician, an unschooled guy who wouldn't have understood seven eighth time or any of the the measures that Bob's asking for to really put him in the, these shoes to a certain extent. So for me, on the performance side, Peter Chris is the MVP of the album. Uh, what would you kind of comment on the band? Who who stands out as being most important to the success of Destroyer? Well, you mentioned Peter, of course, he jokes uh, in his memoir, and I quote in the book that he had to go into like that primal scream therapy uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. that John Lennon went through in the early 70s just to get through it. Uh, Peter had his demons, of course, that started to come out uh, specifically in the Hotter Than Hell sessions. And then later on, uh, you know, certainly in Destroyer, I'm, I'm very candid in it. And Bob joked with me, don't make me look like a crazy drug addict. <laughs> but uh, Bob admits that his cocaine abuse during that period of time had not gotten to the point where he couldn't function. It actually was fueling this overwhelming personality that he had. I even jokes now, he said, I could never do what I did at 24, 25, 26 years old. Now, I wouldn't even think of doing it. He said, I was a force of personality. It was a diminutive Al Pacino looking guy who would simply get in the faces of everyone and just take over. 
Uh, that force of personality really inspired Gene and Paul, who, as we know, are one of the two of the most hardworking people in the history of entertainment. Absolutely, yeah. They gave it all, all the time. Uh, Gene had no interest in anything but putting out rock music that would get him plenty of money and plenty of women. Paul wanted to play great rock music that would put him in the pantheon of the great English rock bands that he revered. When they got Bob, they were the guys that unequivocally, along with Bill Coyne, thought this is exactly what we need. Alice Cooper was the biggest thing on the planet when they were just starting out in 73. They were splintering. Alice was going off on his own, maybe doing movies. Let's get Bob Ezrin in here, which they did in late 74, early 75. A lot of people don't know that, and I came to learn from working on the book prior to even the recording alive. Uh, Ace, on the other hand, uh, was even further along in his addictions, uh, specifically alcohol, but he was dis he discovered cocaine through Bob Ezrin in that record, and it did not help him. Uh, it did fuel Bob in his production, and it did allow, and, and Ace and Peter are right, Gene and Paul looked away at the amount of drugs that were being used, but it, because it wasn't affecting, I mean, Paul is very clear in his memoir, Bob was doing a lot of cocaine, but he was really, really pushing the band, really coming up with great ideas. It wasn't really affecting him. Bob admits later on, by the time they did The Elder, he was a full-fledged addict. But at this time, he was not. It was part of the 70s. Everybody was kind of doing it, except for Gene and Paul. But with Ace, it was a little much. So Ace, and according to Bob, it wasn't even so much the drugs or the fact that Ace was screwing around doing poker games, which is sort of an apocryphal tale. It was about Ace being really... Uh, insecure around Bob. That force of personality that drove Gene and Paul to be better kind of put Ace in a little bit of a, a hole, and he didn't like it. Ace liked just showing up and just wailing off the top, and that's great. But Bob is really trying to help them paint a masterpiece. And and Ace knew that Bob had used other guitar players in the past with Alice Cooper and Aerosmith, so he was not, you know, he, he, he felt the pressure. But Peter, as you say, he's the MVP. Never mind Beth. I mean, his drumming on the record, probably the best he ever did. And Bob put him through the ringer. And I learned a lot about that through writing this book. How much, I mean, Peter really Peter, physically. He suffered. Shocked. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. He suffered for the art on that album. And for me, he's sure. always been, it's the drums. It's the backbeat. So without the drums, there's no foundation to really build a song on. So right. I, I've always loved his, his work on that album. But I also think Paul Stanley, vocally, he's taking a gigantic leap on this album in terms of his singing. Um and, you know, you got to give him a medal for giving Gene God of Thunder because giving away songs, particularly to who who is his rival in the band in t for, the, for the songwriting, it's Gene. You know, when he's had to give songs away to other members of the band, you know, that's kind of, well, that keeps them happy. But here he is. He's giving away a song to Gene that becomes Gene's, you know, theme song in essence. So I always I always find that a cool a cool story. Um Going back to Corky briefly, you know, the whole capturing of the sound on this album really makes it, gives it a grandeur. You know, it, it's so bombastic. It has, it's so grandiose in its sound. And what he has suggested in the interview he did with me is listen to this album wearing headphones. And, right. I'm, and, and I'm sure he told you the story about the binaural recording, you know, yes. and, and the technical uh, details of capturing a lot of the sounds. But what they add to these songs, these songs are great as they are, but the recording techniques and Bob's magic are, you know, did he see this as a pet project, Bob? And, uh, you know, when did you first get to talk to him? Um, well, Bob did not. Bob, from the very beginning when I interviewed him, said this was the, one of the best times of my life. 
one of the greatest experiences of my life. He said that several times. And he was very grateful that I was doing the book. It took me over a year to get Bob. First of all, I had to get in contact with him, and I got in contact with him through Alice Cooper, who I did two features. One was a cover feature for the East Coast Rocker. I think I want to say 2011, 2012. I think it was 2012. And, and you can find all this stuff on my website if you're interested, and they're out there. But the, the Alice Cooper interviews are some of my favorite. He, no more honest, interesting cat is Alice Cooper but um, that you'll find in Alice Cooper. But uh, Alice and Dick, the late Dick Wagner – who I interviewed, one of the last interviews he ever did um, before passing last year, sadly. Um, they both, and Dick, as you know, played on, on the Destroyer album in the background, but he also played on all the Alice Cooper solo yeah. stuff. Some of the, you know, he played with Aerosmith, he played, you know, a ton of guys. But the two of them did a lot of, you know, cajoling for me. And that gave Bob a feeling that I was serious. But then when I finally got Bob's email, I started to hit him. And thanks to his um, assistant, Kim, and uh, it, it just kept, next week, next month, I might have a break in Christmas. This went on for 12, 13, 14 months. And I kept, he was literally my Wizard of Oz. It was almost like this incredible <laughs> journey to get Bob to sit down and talk to me. When he finally did, he was a little intimidating. I, I get it. I get the whole intimidation. But after he started to see that I was serious and I had done my homework and that Corky and Jay gave me some really good foundations, ask Bob this. Remember when this happened? Make sure Bob talks about that, that it really got him flowing. And Bob absolutely 100% thought he was going to be Kiss's producer. He was going to take this band that he said was a 50,000 and 75,000 sales thing and make it a million sales. And he was going to work to give them the ethos, the pathos, the subtext, the cinematic aspect of what he wanted to do. Sadly, because of the unbelievable blowback when Kiss came out with an album with strings and calliopes and backwards tracks and that binaural recording opening. Yeah. Uh, someone just recently wrote me, hey, I, I read your book or I'm reading your book and I never listened to Kiss Destroyer. I put it on. I'm like, what the hell's going on? Where's the music? <laughs> so you can only imagine what people thought of back then. And so Bob really wanted to work with these guys. He loved them. He said that he felt that Paul and Gene, as you know in the book, he told me they were like cousins. Uh, you know, they, they came from uh, Jewish families that that uh, really adhered to learning piano at a young age, understanding art to really put forth your best effort. And he felt like he really connected with them uh, culturally and socially and creatively. So I think and I know Bob was really hurt and extremely blindsided when he was told, you got to go. This is killing us. And then Kiss ran back to Eddie Kramer to do rock and roll over by the end of 76. But to this day, they all agree it probably was a big mistake. But Bob thought he was going to be their producer. He put his heart and soul in this, and I think you're right. If you listen to this record and Billion Dollar Babies <laughs> and The Wall, yes, those are three of his huge-sounding big drums in your face. You feel like you're at a concert hall albums. I think he nailed it with Kiss Destroyer, though. I think it's – even though The Wall is brilliant, don't get me wrong. I'm not comparing the genres. And obviously I love Alice Cooper. I don't know. For me, Destroyer is almost like his great Gatsby. It's his masterpiece for me. I think it's Bob's. He found the right band at the right time, and they really came through for him, and he came through for them, I think. I don't think you could talk about Bob Ezrin without mentioning any of those three bands and those albums that you mentioned in particular. Regardless of the genre, a good album is a good album because I think a good album crosses over genres. It makes a person who may just be a metalhead listen to a pop album or a rock album and vice versa. So, you know, when, when we talk about The Wall, you put on all of these albums. And again, it, for me, it comes back to headphones that you listen to. You're picking up all these nuances in your head that there are just so many layers and textures. And it comes back to Bob. He really paints an like an audio picture 
You know, yes. it, it's got so many different layers of paint, um, which are sounds right. for him. It, it's Technicolor sound. It is. And, and let me just say, I love that. Okay. And obviously you get it. But I totally understand, and so does Bob, that KISS fans who love the raw, in your face, you know, barely produced with mistakes in there, the first three albums and even the albums after that. Um, I understand why they, they feel like, oh, that Bob Ezrin, he ruined them for, you know, what's with the stream, great expectations, and why is there a ballot? I totally and utterly get that. But for me, I think that's what Kiss needed. But I understand where fans would, would, would revolt on that because they want that old, and I always thought it was disingenuous. There were a lot of reviewers who absolutely dismissed Kiss for those three first three albums, including Alive. Yep. That all, now we're saying in the reviews, which is why I put all those reviews in the book, yeah, you know, what are they ruining Kiss? Where's the songs about screwing and being on the street? And where's that? You know, it's too much echo. And where? But they were complaining. These songs sound half-assed. You know, they the same people were complaining that the songs were not fully realized or the band didn't really connect to their image. Were now when Destroyer came out saying, "Hey, what happened to that Kiss we love? You didn't love them. It's crazy." But I get why the fans though. Uh, might have been taken aback by this. And that's why it stands out. You either love this or you don't. There are a lot of people who love Destroyer or don't love any other Kiss album. You know, I, I mean, I, I, I tend to like parts of other Kiss albums. I think this is the best one. I think it's their seminal album. I think it came at a time when they absolutely were on the cusp of greatness. They ended up achieving that uh, monetarily, creatively. But um, I understand why people uh, were taken aback and later on just said, yeah, I, I dismissed that record because... Um, I, it, it loses a lot of that raw New York, uh, you know, ballsy sound that Kiss had. I disagree with that, but I kind of, I kind of get where they they might come to that conclusion. Yeah, it transforms the band from that black leather image, you know, of Alive and and the three preceding albums. I mean, think of what Dress to Kill could have been if Neil Bogart had put some of his pop, you know, pretensions into the songwriting side of things instead of just the sound of how he captured the band with the, you know. He worked with the band to capture that sound. They, they co-produced uh, to a certain extent. Now you have Bob taking a more hands-on approach in refining that material and capturing it. So, you know, it, it could easily have happened. But I'm always amused by the Jack Douglas freak out. You know, can you remix this? Can you save it? And, right. and, and now, right. that we, now that we know the way that Bob mixes albums is there is no unmixing, is there? Because everything is tracked down. On tape, yeah. With Sean Delaney and the guys who worked on the, uh, the, um, the Platinum album, understood. Uh, when they went in to get the tapes, they wanted to get rid of all that crazy stuff because the, the songs jump off the needle. Uh, for those of you who remember records, um, they jump out at you. The bass sound, everything, the, 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 the enormity of the drums as compared to, say, something that was on Dress to Kill or anything else. And uh, they couldn't. But you're right. I mean, Jay said there was no taking it off. And Bob said when he went in in 2011 for the 2012 Resurrected Mix or Remaster that he really didn't have to do much, that it was all there on tape, and he actually was impressed, almost like he was listening to someone else's record. So that was that was kind of neat. Do you think, um, just this is a complete aside, do you think there was any point to Destroy or Resurrected? No, I don't. I will say this, though. I was, I was excited, because I was working on the book at the time, and I was excited that I just kind of started that they were going to, I started reading online, I guess they were all, um, you know, erroneous reports about having like a two disc box set with booklet and pictures. A lot of the pictures that I include in my book and, you know, that are out there now 
uh, in places that Corky had or other people had in the back. I thought there was gonna they were really gonna do a tribute to this album. I felt was way underrated, not only in the Kiss Kiss canon, but in the history of rock music. Even though I, I seem to see it in all these lists, though the, all the lists that you see, Kiss Destroyer is the only um, you know Kiss. Uh, studio album that kind of makes the cut. Alive's always in there, but um, I felt very un- that it was underrated. So I felt it was good that he went back and revisited it. But I-, I got nothing out of that. I thought that the the bass lines though were a lot punchier, mm-hmm. and that helped me to deconstruct it because I realized how really great Gene played on this record. Um, I know Paul, and Paul has told me when I did the cover story for Live to Win in 2005, 2006, whenever that was, that Paul kind of carried the band through the 80s and on makeup time, and he felt that Gene kind of was mailing it in. But um, And he's kind of dismissive sometimes of, of Gene's talents in his memoir, but I'll tell you, man, his bass playing on that record is fantastic. And Bob even said he came up with, I know that Bob came up with the Freddy's Dead bass line that's the answer in Detroit Rock City, but a lot of that stuff on, uh, on Sweet Pain, Shout Out Loud was your very funky Motown-type number. Um, really the great backbeat with the bass drum and the uh, floor tom on Do You Love Me. Yeah. Gene is playing his ass off on that record, and, he, and I think that the Resurrected gave him more props. You could hear those bass lines more. Other than that, I guess no. And it's those little elements that come through in the Resurrected. I honestly have not listened to it since it came out. You know, I listened to it a few times. I was like, oh, wow, you can hear a little bit more piano here. You can hear a little bit more of Dick Wagner's acoustic guitar, that, uh, particularly on Beth and on some of the songs it's a little bit more pronounced. So you, you have a better idea of where Dick was because when I interviewed Dick, he couldn't remember if it was three songs or four songs. Um, and I had always thought that when he, he said he played guitar on Beth, I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, I don't hear it. I wasn't able to hear it on the original recording. So I was always thinking that Phantom of the Park, that must be Dick Wagner. It isn't, so we know that now. But right. uh, I asked him that too. I thought that was him too. Yeah. <laughs> no, that that's just uh, some, I, we don't know who it is. Right. Um, who, who recorded that in June 78. So let's let's get into the release of the album. It, it, it's released. It goes up to 11 on the charts, which uh, for Kiss was a very good, um, you know, kind of result for a new studio album after the, I guess they've had their panic attack and it's coming out no matter what. Um, right. Is that number 11 the strength of the album or is that just the residual effect of Alive, do you think? Uh, I'm going to – I'll demure even though I, I – I, you know, I, obviously spent three years of my life and wrote 300 plus pages on destroyer i have to be fair um yeah i think that people couldn't wait who had gotten alive for the next kiss album a lot of those people as we've already documented were disappointed or shocked or turned off or didn't know what to make of it uh a lot of people built on it um so yeah i think alive went to seven on the charts, so it's still the highest charting Kiss album, but the highest charting Kiss studio album, I think, is still is still Destroyer at eleven. I could be wrong, but I'm fairly sure. I know that that um, Beth is the highest charting Kiss single ever. Which that story is fantastic. I dedicated an entire chapter to that Scott Shannon story about promotions and getting the B side to the A side, getting this ballad on AM radio, and when the album had tanked. And this this answers your question best, right? The album comes out in March. Shout Out Loud doesn't really do much. It's okay, but that's the first single. Then they try, I think, Flaming Youth and Detroit Rock City, and none of them really do much. Those bomb completely. Yeah, so, and then, not that Kiss was a singles band, but it helps. And um, and Rock and Roll Night is a single, again, made it into, I think, into the top 20 or top 25. I don't have my notes in front of me, but the, um, then it, it I, I'm fairly sure that the week that Ace got married, May 11th, 
1976, yep. was its height. I think 11 and then 14, and then it starts to dive exponentially down for weeks. And the band, again, starts their panic. Um, and this is when uh, Scott Shannon gets to work and gets Beth out there. And unprecedentedly, I, I don't know if there is a precedent for this, the album is practically out of the charts, and up it, up it goes. It doesn't quite get to 11, but it gets it back, back close to the top 20 uh, by September, so much so that Kiss already ran to, to, um, to, uh, to do Rock and Roll Over with Eddie Kramer, put it out, but when they did the Paul Lynn special, they did all the songs from Destroyer. They yep. did Dressed to Kill. This is October of 76. Dressed to Kill, King of Nighttime World, and Beth, of course. So it's a, it's a, Destroyer has a weird story as far as its post, I call it the aftermath, because there's this panic, there's this, the album does great anyway. Okay, they're cool. They go out on the, the, the Spirit of 76 tour throughout the summer. It's a huge pop culture thing. It's written about all over the place. They're biggest staging they ever had sort of the origin of what their staging is now and then it dives and then here comes beth who the heck thought and then it comes it, it, it drives the album back up the charts again so it's a fascinating story it really is but i think it was alive that gave it that first boost until beth takes over you know because obviously i've got the chart right up in front of me and it's you know August the 21st it drops off the charts comes back on completely off right oh, yes. yeah okay. it comes back on you know October the 2nd you know in the 130s and then it just hovers a little bit it goes back up into the top 40s so that's obviously the strength but you know it, it for a song like Beth to save an album is just an amazing story and that's um, I don't want to give away that too much about that Scott Shannon story because that's one of the best chapters in the book where you really Thanks. get to understand and it's a great one to read from him as well as long as some of the other stuff he touches on um, you know it's a paints, paints a great picture of an album being saved um, in such an interesting way. So for everyone out there listening to this, you know, when you do read that, you know, that that's one, pay attention to that chapter because it's, it's, it's a great, you know, it, it's a, a feel good story, really. You know, you're cheering for the band, you know, 40 years on it, you still want them to succeed. And now you get to hear about how they kind of did it. Right. I just want to say real quick, you had mentioned in an earlier email when we were setting this up, how you liked the uh, boot camp and the, uh, the white tie and tails Absolutely. Uh, chapters. Yeah, I'm wondering if you could. I mean, I, this is a thrill for me to talk to you about it, get some feedback. Uh, why do those things stand out to you? I mean, they're the huge parts of how this album was made, so you certainly nailed it as far as the theme. But I'm just curious what you, what questions you might have had or what thoughts you might have had about those chapters. You know, Boot Camp just sums up for me uh, what Destroyer is about. It was taking four guys who aren't the greatest musicians in the world – they're solid enough, you know, they, they can all play. We know Gene can play bass, and Destroyer proves that he it can be a great bass player given the, you know, given the impetus to do so. But Boot Camp is just so descriptive of getting these guys to be the best they can be. It's like a documentary on an athlete preparing for their marathon. You know, it, it's everything that's positive about the band. And, and there's so much negative that circulates when you talk about Kiss, uh, people who poo-poo them, oh, they're the guys who just wear the makeup, or there's even the fans who don't really respect them. Boot Camp is a chapter that really gets you celebrating the effort that they were making as a band with Bob, and Bob being the circus director in, in some to some extent. So, you know, anything like that you know, just makes me smile. I'm, I'm sitting there reading the book, and I'm just enjoying it. Um, you know, nice. it, is, is there... You know, I, I guess a ton of new information in there. No, it's how you write it that makes it so engaging. 
And you really communicate it well in that chapter. In particular, for me, it, it just resonates. It's like I feel like a cheerleader for Kiss. Uh, <laughs> you know, great. when I, I wasn't even in, living in America or listening to Kiss in 1976, it's like you're just rooting for them. Here is how they did it. So, you know, th that's a great one. And Black Ties and Tails, you know, going into the orchestra, you know, in the orchestration with, uh, who was it, H.A. McMillan uh, and the American Symphony Orchestra for this one? Or am I thinking older? You know, just... The backstory on that, you, you really get a good feel for the creative process that Bob was going through and capturing it. And you've got some information in there. Um, when I walk away from any KISS book and I can say I learned something new, then for me that's a winner. And I learned something new in your book, and I'm not giving it away. I'm going to let the other KISS fans you know, see if they find these nuggets because in these hills there is gold. You just have you, – you, and, and this is for the readers. They just have to read it. Um, and I think they'll find something new or they'll find an explanation that they like uh, from your writing style. So, you know, props to you for writing it well. But also those, those are my two chapters along with uh, Scott Shannon that really resonate. So, you know, th those are good ones. Focus on those people out there. And, oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, thank you. Uh, well said. I was going to say that, uh, you know, Alan McMillan, who was a mentor to Bob, and Bob got me him, obviously. He lives up in Toronto and uh, he's in his, uh, I think he's in his late 80s now, early 90s. Uh, but sharp as a tack, remembered a lot of that stuff, gave me a really good insight on how an engineer, excuse me, a producer uh, works with an arranger and how they work out strings. And I, I not only learned about what they did for Beth and Great Expectations, but how they how they work on, you can picture anybody working on any kind of string arrangements or arrangements for not only rock, but any kind of uh, music soundtrack or movie soundtrack. Uh, so I learned myself, but I would say that um, most of the stuff that I stumbled upon was really given to me, you know, sort of like, hey, this has never been, somebody needs to know this. And that's kind of why I did it. Uh, I, I really felt, and I still feel, that KISS has given such a short shrift as far as their, uh, their impact on the culture and what they did. And if you're going to try to do that, you write it about Destroyer because that's when they kind of pull out all the stops, as you said, and really busted it to, to create something great and new and interesting. So I, I just feel like they needed to, to be given their due. And hearing from these real, true, great professionals about how much they love these songs and they wanted to make them better uh, really proved it to me. So that's where I, me as the author, as a person diving in with the labor of love, I learned as well. So yeah, I think KISS fans will get some stuff out of this. I mean, some of the stuff is, has been told before, as you say, and I appreciate your, your compliments about my style or the writing, but, um, but I think it's really great to see it all in one package, if I may say, it's the kind of book I would want to read. You know, and like somebody should write a book about Destroyer. Well, then write it yourself, idiot. So I did. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so that was kind of my motivation originally. And it, again, I can't say enough that you feel this way about it because that's what it's about, man. Me and you chatting about this right now, that's what it's about. All the hours, and you know, you write. You, yeah. write, you know how many hours of this, you know, it's not like being in a band where you get the clapping or a movie premiere or people, hey, nice job. This is the times where you really get some feedback where people who really care, who know what the hell they're talking about, tell you, you know what? Nice job. So it's a great thrill for me just to talk to you about this stuff. Is there any? Really. Is there anyone that you would have liked to interview yourself for the uh, book that you did not get? I'm not talking about the band members um, directly. Well, but, I did and try. I did try to get everybody. Uh, Kissing uh, uh, Paul and Gene. Paul, I've gotten to know some of his management since the piece I wrote. Uh, 
he was aloof. I did quote sometimes from my original interview because I had asked him about those songs because, you know, Destroyer has always been in my transom. Uh, Gene is just completely unapproachable. Unless he's getting paid or it's official, uh, you know, I hate to say, but that's what it was. It's just hard to get through to those guys. It was hard enough, you know, Hal Leonard helped me get all the lyrics. You know, I worked whack back and forth with the Kiss people on that. Um, Ace and Peter, to their discussion, and Ace is working on one now, uh, I know a lot of people in the inner circle for Ace. Eddie Trunk tried to help me. Eddie contributed to the book, a quote. Um, you know, just – they were working on memoirs. They didn't want to give it away. Peter Chris lives, I want to say, like 35, 40 miles from me here in Jersey. So mm-hmm. he's not even that far, maybe even closer. Uh, I tried to hook up with him. It just never worked. And then I was discussing something with a good friend of mine who was um, who helped me with the book, Peter Blasevic. Who helped me with the? He's a you know a classically trained musician with a lot of the music in there. He was working in archive department at Rutgers University. He's a library scientist, and he said to me, you know, he was writing some of my work, and he said I would steer clear of trying to get these guys to talk about this 40 years after the fact. Go back and get their quotes at 26, 25 years old. That's when you're gonna get the feel, get the reader into that period. So that kind of alleviated some of my pressure of having to get quotes from the guys in Kiss. Um, Anybody, I would have loved to interview, obviously, the deceased. Um, Bill O'Coin's comments would have been nice in yeah. retrospect. Certainly Neil Bogart. I know they're making – Larry Harris told me they're making a movie about Neil Bogart with um, with uh, Justin Timberlake playing him. I think Spike Lee's going to direct it. I found that out during the making of the book, so hopefully that comes out. Um, I would have loved to talk to Stan Penridge, and I want to thank you, uh, Julianne, for uh, – for, for that interview in your other side of the coin because uh, that's the only thing I've ever seen that, that Stan talks about Beck and writing it. And uh, without that, I wouldn't have had a quote from Stan, but it would have been nice to talk to Stan. So really the people who passed away, I think, um, because I, I, it would have been nice to get their retrospective comments. You know, Stan was awesome. Uh, and, you know, when you mentioned that interview that I did with him, you know, it's just depressing. I was starting to build a relationship with Stan, and I had miles of questions for him. And these these were just the first ones that we'd managed to go through. But, you know, what a great story Beck is, you know. And, and Beth on this album goes from Beck to Beth to history, you know, People's Choice Award and Peter Chris's, you know, defining moment. You know, this is the time that Peter Chris saved a Kiss album. So it, yeah. it's, it's really kind of ironic in that way. Uh, so and so anyone else that you you would have missed, I, I guess, you know, we miss them because they're no longer with us. I like the idea of going back and using original quotes from the guys from 76, 77, back before revisionism comes into the picture or, or the years cloud the memories. I think we get a better picture from quotes in that era, um, a, a more honest quote than you might necessarily get talking to any one of them now. And, you know, the the information is kind of out there, but gathering it together, obviously, I've done myself. You've done a great job of putting it together. Um, what, if anything, would have been, what was the key point of the book that you would have said, if I don't have this, I can't publish? Was there any one thing that was, you know, a harbinger of doom hanging over you, that if I don't get this, I can't complete this work, no matter how much else has gone into it? I, I, I think I know where you're going with this one. But uh, at least I'm going to guess. First of all, I, like I said, Bob was by Wizard of Oz. There would have been no book. I mean, notwithstanding the guys in Kiss, I think I got enough quotes in there, enough from the box set quotes and the books and great work by Ken Sharp, who also helped me with this. And, and, and uh, uh, Jeff gave me some uh, interviews and quotes that he had done. Um, 
uh, Bob was huge, huge. And then once I started talking to him, I'm like, oh my God, was I ever right? I mean, he gave me so much back into it. His enthusiasm, his memories about uh, about the Calliope story alone, which is one of my favorite all-time stories, because I've always wondered about that. It's crazy, but once he explains it, like, oh yeah. And then talking to people who work with Bob, like Rod O'Brien, who's who had nothing to do really with the story. Everybody worked with the record plant, and someone said, hey, you should talk to Rod. He was the guy that they chased around and, and handcuffed to a door, and then I found out it was somebody else. And then Cork, he said, that, that story's great. I love that one in the games chapter where they talk about all the stuff that was going on behind the scenes while they were making the record. But to answer that question truly and honestly, honestly and I have a chapter at the end, the afterword, is finding the definitive name of the alleged youth that lost their life in allegedly Charlotte or somewhere in the South in 1974 that inspired uh, Paul Stanley to write Detroit Rock City, which I'm, I can't imagine you being a Kiss fan or being uh, listening to that song, especially with the opening, with the radio portending it, and then the end with the car crash that you wouldn't want to know. Now, I'm, I'm writing, I'm spending three years in all these pages, gotta find out. And I spent months talking to, uh, uh, turning over, I got in airplanes and turning over every rock. I think I have a ballpark idea of some of the names that it could be, but. And people came in at the 11th hour and said, no, 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 it wasn't 75, it was 74. And then it wasn't this tour, it was that tour. Uh, to me, I, I, I've never gotten to the full bottom of it, an actual piece of material that says this is what happened. This is what Paul read when he was lounging the day after playing at Charlotte. And, I, and I, I'm so glad we're doing this and I'm glad you brought it up because I thought to myself, you know what? I end the book with a challenge. I know it's out there. There's been a lot of towns that say this is the town where the kid, we know the kid. It's not Detroit, it's not Charlotte, it's this town, it's not North Carolina, it's Georgia, that if, if there's somebody out there that watches this, that, no, hey, it was my cousin, I remember it was this guy, I have an article, it would be so great as a fan and somebody out there who is researching it, if you have an absolute, you know, without a question, name, and an article depending on, I mean, I talked to cops, six or seven or eight or ten, I, I can't even think, I lost count, newspapers, uh, it was just it, – it's, it's, it eluded me. I have, I have names in there, which has never been done, and, and you know you read it. But that one, it still haunts me. It does. It haunts me. <laughs> I, 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 still, I don't know what you thought about the afterwards there. If you thought, oh, did he get to the bottom of it or it, it titillated you for knowing the answer? Or why – when everyone even asked, it's very macabre. But it's out there. At some point, I realized – I thought to myself, this didn't even happen. It's one of those kiss things where they make it up you know, for the drama of it. But it did. It did happen. Yep. And the question is, where is that name? Where is that lonely road where that kid drove that inspired Detroit Rock City, which to me, it's my favorite Kiss song and a perfect opener for that record. It really inspired me to start to write this song, uh, to write this uh, book. So. so Destroyer bookends itself. You have the audio introduction, the newsreader. Is it definitively proven now that that is Gene? It is not. That's Bob. So we're, it's it's not. Bob says, and it's funny because Ian uh, Scott Ian, who I quote in the book book from uh, Anthrax, he he got to an argument with hey, Gene. Told me it was him, and it does sound like Gene. Uh, they were already gone. They went off on tour, according to Corky's um, uh, notes, and I don't have them right in front of me. But it was either the last day of January, the 29th, 30th, or the first day of, of February. I think they took about a week to to mix it but it was like somewhere in the late 20s and kiss had finished principal recording in the 21st 22nd they were gone and they realized holy crap this record is like 28 minutes long we need to do something 
So it was sort of an afterthought. And I have a whole story about how Jamesina came up with that idea of the crazy loop at right. the end, which is called Rock and Roll Demons, apparently. Thank you very much, yep. Julian. <laughs> and that's why Jamesina insisted. I had the wrong, I had the original copy, and it's on there. I said, no, it's not. Um, and the opening bit with the binaural and uh, Corky's car, his, uh, his, uh, his Toyota sitting out in front of the old um, – uh, comedy store that whatever that was called there in New York City, which was right across the street on 45th or 44th from the record plant where they actually did record somebody getting in a car and starting it. Um, all that stuff was recorded with Kiss not even there. They hadn't even heard it until the final thing. So that's that's according to Bob Ezra and quite a few witnesses. That's not Gene. So let's sum this up. Um, you know, what's your favorite part of the book? Uh you know, most people will shy away from that and say, oh, I like it all. You know, it's like my kids. But um, my favorite part was writing the the um, dramatic narratives of each song. Um, I got some positives and negative from my editors on that. Um, I remember Jeff Suz, I showed him those. And he was said, well, I don't know, maybe Kiss fans already know it. But I enjoyed doing it. It was the one piece of real creative writing that I did in the book where I kind of – the hardest thing in the world is to describe music. You could describe the making of music and mm -hmm. you could use the keys they're in and the chords they're playing and the style. And It's always fun to, to describe a band or an artist on stage doing their thing, which I love to do reviews for The Aquarium. But writing about music, like the song, describing the song, I had a lot of – I don't know what you thought about that ultimately, but I, I, I loved doing that. You know, I'm going to have to admit to skipping over those because I just wanted the chapters. I went for the meat. I went. I went for the meat, and when I go back for my second reading, then it's going to be the whole thing. So I do. Okay. I do promise. I promise you here. I will. I will read those. Uh, but in order to to get into this, you know, I just wanted to totally read the the, the nuts and bolts of this book. So um, I, I I guess we're getting to the end of this. Is there anything that you'd like to add to people? You know persuade them because there are going to be some kiss fans that say i've read this all before i've just had that with my book you know i'm not going to learn anything new from it you know what would you say to those kiss fans who are on that side of the fence you know what are they well, going to what are they going to get out of your efforts i don't know if it's matters to kiss fans but it certainly mattered to me and i don't think in all due respect there are great kiss books about exactly what happened and the build up and showing how uh, you know, nothing to lose that Ken Sharp did with Paul and Gene last year uh, really talks about how hard they work and got everybody. It's a great um, uh, oral biography. Uh, certainly your work, as I've said before, just human's effort and getting all the details in there. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is this book was written for Kiss fans who have to listen incessantly to people who like Pink Floyd, the Beatles, the Stones, all of which I love. But Kiss, eh, you got right here. You can't rock and roll all night. Eh. But they paint and the, the blowing up and the kid, and they're selling everything and they've got cruises and it's, they had dolls and lunch boxes. But I'll tell you, I wanted to make a book that gives Kiss fans that ammo. Never, I hope, again, can it, will a Kiss fan have to listen that this band had no musical merit? That this band, now I know a lot of Kiss fans don't give a crap, but if they do, and they want to read something that will give them that great ammo. The next time somebody puts their band down and says that they don't have gravitas or merit, that this book will explain that. And um, I can't imagine being a Kiss fan because I've been one, and I'll never forget, well, who could, 
what was it? Uh, who was the, the gentleman from Rage Against the Machine that introduced them to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? No, Tom Morello. Yes. Well, Morello said, we've all been there. We got beaten up for being Kiss fans. We got ridiculed for our Kiss shirts. Uh, they're out there. And I hope that this book will be, if not the only one, but the, the, a start of the, an intellectual reimagining from a critique standpoint of what Kiss meant, how good they were as musicians, how the songs really did have merit, that it was a great combination from the Ken Kelly amazing painting, and I have a whole chapter about that, to all the people that worked behind it, to the beautiful string arrangements by Macmillan and Ezrin, to the raw beauty of God of Thunder and Do You Love Me and Detroit Rock City that really add to the Kiss pantheon. I want the Kiss fans to have a place where they can say, hey, you don't think Kiss is any good? Boom, read that. And then come back and tell me it isn't. So, and I've gotten some great feedback from people who don't even like Kiss. I've had three or four people that have reviewed the book that said, Kiss, what the hell? And they read it and they're like, uh-oh, I, I think I've missed out on some stuff. So that's great. If it gets people back to the table discussing Kiss as a serious rock act of the 1970s instead of just some circus act, then I think I've done my job. So I'm hoping Kiss fans do get that out of it, enjoy it, learn something from it, and have some ammo for those people who say that they don't. They don't respect Kiss because they should be respected. Absolutely. How how important though do you think Glickman Marks is in this story at this point? Because they're coming into the band at this point, and this this really marks the transition. I mean, I've talked about the transition from the leather, you know, from the pre-alive into the post-alive, but we're becoming a brand now. You know, it's yes. it's kind of the foundation of the brand, the costuming, the nicknames. You know, that you know what had been a vampire, and the guys are actually discussing this on the FAQ uh, message board this week about when the names really emerge of spa you know spaceman lover, you know star child, and all that. Right. You know, right. so so how important do you think Glickman Marx is in this story? Because you know, obviously, I haven't talked about all the all the people you've interviewed within this book, and we've left out Dennis Woolock. Uh, I haven't talked uh, about Ken Kelly. You know, I'm going to say you want to know what's in the book. Go read it because those are great segments in themselves. Uh, but we really don't talk much about Glickman Marks, right? Uh, who were a huge ad agency that happened to be in the same building and in the same floor, and in many ways the same room as Bill O'Coin when he started uh, his um, Direction Plus, and then later on Rocksteady and, uh, and managed Kiss. Uh, they were there. Dennis Wallach, who designed Kiss Alive and did a fantastic job finding Ken Kelly. That story is my favorite story in the entire book. Um, the, uh, the, you know, they were there from the beginning with the logo and the big logo hanging in lights above Kiss, which separated them for all, from all bands, even when they were opening. Uh, you know, working on Gene spraying uh, the, the kerosene out of his mouth to, to learn the, the fire breathing. All that happened you know, with those guys in the room. Finally, because of the uh, money troubles that I talk about uh, and how close Kiss was to the very end, really, uh, huge legal problems with Casablanca, not getting their royalties for the entire time they were with Casablanca, Casablanca dumping money they didn't have into the band to keep them on the road, Bill of Coin using five or six different Amexes with different <laughs> yeah. names to keep them alive. Um, so they were on the precipice, but they got it, but um, Bill got a, a loan from Glickman Marks, and now they had some skin in the game. And Dennis Wallach and later on the guys who worked on the uh, Spirit of 76, like Mark Ravitch, who designed the entire set that he interviewed for the book, they all swear that that was when Kiss went to that panther, that, that went to the icon status. They went from the leather and uh, the blue hair to the jumpsuit suits that you see on the cover of the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the Destroyer cover, the painting, which Ken had to paint twice because he painted them in the original uh, yep. outfits. And they said, no, 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 we got new ones now. Uh, so we have to have them be superheroes. 
and just the massive amount of marketing. That's when they started, which a lot of people do hate, but I loved because I was young. The uh, you know the marketing of the the figurines and the the lunch boxes and everything. Kiss uh, the, the the first concert booklet that they had, one of the original ones that were ever made for the '76 tour. Um, the huge posters, the big billboards on Hollywood um, and and Vine, the all the stuff that came out of it. That was Glickman and Marks. They were they had skin in the game and they started to really push Kiss and bring them out into a global atmosphere. Uh, it didn't hurt that Beth was a huge AM crossover hit, and they were starting to hit a lot more women, uh, a lot more people from different genres. It didn't hurt that that Alive, that, that uh, 76 tour was an extension of Alive and really blew the doors off of everybody, and, and Kiss really embraced it. But yeah, Glickman Marks was a big, big deal at that time. They, they hit the big time there as far as advertising, marketing, and really money behind them for the first time where people weren't really literally borrowing you know, and begging to keep them alive on the road. For a band that was so afraid of the album at one point, I mean, it's kind of strange that the Spirit of 76 tour, you know, starts off with six songs on the album in the set. So they can't right. have been that, that afraid of it. Uh, my, my final question slash statement on this uh, discussion is when we look at Rock and Roll Over and running back into the comfortable arms of Eddie Kramer, do we call Destroyer a failure? Because um, they never went back, or at least until un, until they tried the Elder, um, and maybe I guess we could say to a certain extent they did soften a little bit with uh, Vinnie Poncia for Dynasty and Unmasked. But right. they they for the remainder of the originals era they just did your kind of standard safe rock and roll. Um, right. So is Destroyer ultimately a failure? Um, it depends on your semantics. I'll say this though. Um, it was in and of itself its own thing. I, I, I did a series of interviews in June that I put up on the uh, on the Shout It Out Loud uh, Facebook page in which uh, I was asked several times about that. Is this the beginning of KISS, the end of KISS, a new era, and there was shifting? Um, I think it, it's, it, it's hard to describe because at least with Bob Dylan, when he gets to Blonde on Blonde, his 60s masterpiece, you've got this lead up. Highway 61 and bring it all back home. When you get to Sgt. Pepper's, you have uh, Rubber Soul, then you have um, uh, Revolver. Yeah. And people say, well, you can't compare this to Sgt. Pepper. Why not? It's their Sgt. Pepper. So, but like you said, Dress to Kill, stripped down, produced by a guy who's not a producer, uh, at, to Eddie Kramer, one of the great producers who worked on Alive, obviously, where, you know, Jimi Hendrix and everything. He, he, they went back to the Raw again. So Kiss saw it as a scary endeavor. But I'll say this. Ultimately, the long view of Destroyer is simply this. It makes all the top 100s, the only studio album that Kiss produced that makes all the top 100s. It makes that book, you know, 100 or 1,000 records, 500 records you need to have before you die. Uh, you know, the Rolling Stone, the, go down the list. I, I name them in the book. So retrospectively, in the long view, it survives. Number two, I saw uh, several interviews with Kiss when they got back together in 96 for the reunion tour. What Paul says over and over again, I guess we have to admit, Destroyer is the seminal Kiss album. It's the album more songs are played from from Kiss Destroyer on that comeback than than anything except for the first album. You know they still play uh, you know uh, Dress to Kill and the King of the Nighttime World. Sometimes it kicks off the tours, sometimes it doesn't, but it's in there. They can't not play Shout It Out Loud, which yep. they used to kick off in '96. They have to do Beth, right? That's got them all together. When the band got back together, and Do You Love Me was done during the uh, Unplugged. So those songs kind of, and obviously God of Thunder. I mean, it's Gene's song. So in retrospect, I don't see how it could be considered a failure. I will say this, though. It absolutely shifted, you used the word paradigm, it shifted the narrative for Kiss. It shifted their sonic abilities. And 
maybe it was a one in a million shot. Maybe it was their great Gatsby because, let's face it, Fitzgerald never went back and wrote anything as good as Gatsby again. Some people direct movies that are spectacular, like Mike Nichols, the late Michael Nichols that just died. He, he directed some great stuff, but is there anything better than The Graduate? It's a masterpiece. So sometimes you just – every the confluence of talents, timing, right at the edge of their, their success with the live coming out of that, the pressure they had on them – uh, I, I just think Destroyer is, uh, if, if I'm going to put it in a time capsule, if someone stops me on the street and says, what Kiss album should I listen to? I, I, I'm sorry. i got to give them that one. I really do. Well, that's a, a great way to end it. So how can people find this book? It's everywhere. That good books are sold. Um, if they don't have it in your local Barnes & Noble or whatever, uh, I, I certainly always preach Go to independent bookstores. And I try to do a lot of book signings around Jersey and New York because I like to have people, you know, flow into to independence. Uh, it's it's on Amazon, uh, and uh, the, there was an issue with the Kindle uh, version that the link was not right, but I think they're <laughs> fixing it now. Yep. So that'll be all. By the time people see this, that'll be all ready, ready to go. I guess it'll be available at Nook. It's been available on Barnes and Noble. Quite a few people have picked it up there. So anywhere you'd like to get the book in whatever format. Uh, love to hear from you. You can contact me at my website, uh, jamescampion.com. Love to hear the feedback. Can't wait to hear feedback to our, uh, our discussion. I'm sure there's a lot of comments on that. And uh, anybody who reads it, I, I'm dying to start new discussions to get people to look at the album differently, to look at that period differently, to realize how hard Kiss worked and all the people behind them. And I really do feel, feel it was the thing that catapulted them, like I say in the subtitle, to an icon status. Absolutely. And there's no denying it. You look at a picture of the Eagles who sold millions of more records than Kiss in the 70s. Put a picture of the Eagles up to your father or your grandfather or your, somebody who doesn't know anything about rock music and then put a picture of Kiss. And they won't be able to tell who the hell that is on the left, but they'll definitely be able to tell you who that is on the right. And I think that started with Kiss Destroyer. So do you have any book signings set up right now? Nothing's set yet. Things are still kind of percolating. Thank you. I, I would have plugged them. Just keep an eye out. I, I have, uh, you know, I tweet. So if anybody wants to follow me, I Twitter at uh, Fear No Art and, um, and, or just the website. You know, I'm really excited about a lot of people getting on the uh, Facebook page for Shout It Out Loud. I've put a lot of videos on there, uh, interviews. I put a lot of interview clips. So if you're reading the book and you want to hear what Alan McMillan sounds like or Larry Harris or Jay Messina, I have little quotes from everybody, Bob. Um, you know, from my archives, I taped all the interviews, so I have them. I'm starting to put them out every Friday, so you can go to the Shout Out Loud page and check those out. They're fun, and I like to get feedback that way. So I'll, I'll, you know, update everybody as we go along. But I'm really looking forward to getting out there and meeting Kiss fans. I was going to do the Kiss Expo this year in Jersey, but they moved it to the spring again. So uh, my publisher is still working with them now to hopefully get over there. So I hope to meet a lot of fans there and and get their feedback on the book. But uh, Julian, I thank you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun, man. I could do another hour. Likewise, but I pl thank you for your time because you know what? It's just great to talk with someone else who's gone down the, or going down the same path that I, I travel. So, oh, you best know. of luck with your book. Best of luck with your book, and I want to get a copy of that on the solo albums. I think there's a lot to be learned from that. That's very mysterious in the, in the Kiss Pantheon, I think. Well, you know, same to you. Best of luck with your book as well because uh, I – you know, I think if people get out of it what I've gotten out of it, they're going to walk away from it enjoying it. So that's at the end of the day, they, they should enjoy it. They should learn something new. So thank you very much, James Campion, for your time today. Uh, Kiss fans, check out James's website. Also go to his Facebook uh, for all the bonus material. And I believe you also mentioned that you were selling some books direct signed. 
Uh, I will be doing that probably in the next month on my website. So keep an eye out for that. If you're interested in something like that, just give me a reminder. So, uh, you know, you can send me an email or something like that through, or, you know, there's a contact page on my website or through the Facebook page. Eventually I will be able to do that. I'll be able to set that up. I'm going to get some copies from the publisher, but right now best way to get it is way you get any other book. So, well, fantastic. Thank you again for all your time today and we wish you all the best. All right. Take care kiss FAQ fans. Thanks Julian. Thank you for spending time listening to the KISS FAQ podcast today. All sales are final. There are no refunds. If you like, look us up on Facebook or come over to the KISS FAQ message board and discuss the topic we've broadcast today. We hope to see you again.